1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: Wilhelmina Patton-Stevens Fleming. Mrs. Fleming, as she was known around the observatory. She had taken the maid's job because she was really in distress. She was a recent immigrant from Scotland, She was pregnant, she was on her own. Pickering and his wife immediately realized that she was intelligent, she had taught school in Scotland, so they just moved her into the observatory and taught her how to do the work. But this was the first time people were using photographs of spectra to try to create a classification system for the stars.
1: Is it known how many stars she categorized?
2: At least 10,000. And she published that about 1890.
1: That's Davis Sobel. Over the course of several books about the history of astronomy, she's woven wonderful tales of people who made the discoveries that revolutionized our understanding of the heavens. Her most recent book is not only clear and vivid... It also shines a light on a subject that I think is really important, that the role that women have played in science is all too often ignored. The book's title, The Glass Universe, refers to a collection of hundreds of thousands of photographic glass plates. They revealed new information about stars that a group of women in the late 19th century played a key role in interpreting. This is so great to be talking with you because you do something so wonderful in the book, The Glass Universe. You hooked me on the characters Ah. and what was happening in their lives as people. And then I cared about their achievements even more.
2: Oh, thank you. I think that's so important, especially with a complex subject, to realize that the people doing that work are just people. They have love lives, they have problems. There's an old sense of scientists as people who are just interested in facts that, that persists. Do you find that?
1: Yeah, it t- takes the blood yeah. and pain and anxiety out of it.
2: And there's a lot in it.
1: Kind of gives you the answers before you ask the question. Right.
2: And uh, these people were really slogging through it and happy,
1: happy at the work. And it is a kind of dramatic beginning, Mary Draper is helping her husband catalog the stars. Yeah. And then he dies at such an early age, 40-something.
2: Right, right. He was 45. And she made it her mission to realize his dream.
1: And the dream was specifically to catalog the stars in what way?
2: To photograph their spectra. So specialized photography that would reveal the chemical composition of the stars he, he was a chemist by training and a medical doctor
1: so for people who aren't as as up as i am which is only slightly on what spectra are just explain a little bit about what that is
2: so visible light is part of a spectrum of electromagnetic radiation x-rays radio gamma rays, ultraviolet. It's all light. It's all light. It's all just different wavelengths of light.
1: It's only part of the light are we able
2: to see. Right. The very small part of that spectrum is visible light. So he was managing to photograph the spectrum of the stars, so just a sliver of their light, which would reveal the chemicals that were in the stars.
1: Just briefly, the way I understand it, tell me how off I am in this. The light is broken up into different colors. Right. But when the light passes through certain elements on a star, it's absorbed by that element. Exactly. And there's a dark line that shows up between the colors as the light comes out of your prism.
2: Exactly. So you get a pattern a rainbow line, but then it's broken up by dark bars. And according to the positions of those bars, you can get a sense of which chemicals are emitting and absorbing light in that star.
1: So when this was first tried in the 1800s, they were just checking where the black lines were in a black and white photograph.
2: And really just trying to look at patterns and see if they could make some kind of classification system for the stars to understand why some of them were different colors, or maybe they were different ages, made up of different chemicals. All of that was unknown, and it was long thought that it could never be known because the stars are too far away, you can't sample them. But with spectral photography, you really could. And and Mrs. Draper's husband, Dr. Henry Draper, said that that kind of spectral photography had made the chemist's arms millions of miles long.
1: Hmm. So he dies and she gets in touch with Pickering at Harvard.
2: Edward Pickering, the head of the Harvard College Observatory, who was a, a friend of theirs, someone who really admired their work, and he was very eager to help her carry out that mission, and he knew he had the right equipment to do it. First, he tried to meet her wishes and just find her some assistance who would help her, but that didn't work out, and then he decided he would take over the photography himself, and if she wanted to be involved, by funding the project, then they could do what Dr. Draper had wanted and they could name it for him. And it would be a living memorial.
1: Now, what's interesting in this is as he built the team that would do all of the computing that was required to catalog the stars, he chose many women. He did. And that was unusual at the time, wasn't it? First of all, this was a time when People did computing, not computers.
2: Exactly. Computers were human.
1: They were called computers.
2: Exactly. It was a job description, not a machine. Right. Yeah.
1: So what motivated him to hire so many women at a time when it was unusual?
2: When he took over the Harvard Observatory, there were already several women working there because it was a family business. The director would teach his wife, his daughter— how to do the computations that were required, and then they would just be on the staff. So when Pickering arrived, there were several daughters of previous directors and wives of current astronomers already working there. So he was easily convinced that they were fully capable of doing this work. His, also, his, his own mother was well-educated, and his wife was extremely well-educated. She was the daughter of a former Harvard president. So he wasn't afraid of smart women. Mm. And the other element is that women were cheaper. And he knew that. And he needed, he could get three or four women for the price of one man.
1: I've looked up some of the relative salaries comparing the average income of women to men. And it's only up to 84% now, 84 cents on the dollar. But then it was... Way, way less.
2: Yeah, I think um, maybe 25 cents.
1: When you started talking about how he was looking for women to assist in this cataloging process, he found someone who had worked for him as a maid, Fleming. Yes. That she was able to do the work in an extraordinarily good way.
2: Yes, well, she had taken the maid's job because she was really... In distress. She was a recent immigrant from Scotland. She was pregnant and her husband had disappeared. It isn't really clear what happened to their marriage, but she was on her own and so she had taken any kind of work. But Pickering and his wife immediately realized that she was intelligent, she had taught school in Scotland. So they just moved her into the observatory and taught her how to do the work. Part of what he wanted was for people to look at these photographs and just try to put them in groups by pattern recognition. So the spectra showed up as just little smudges on these glass plates, hundreds of them on each image. And she would look at them all and try to say, okay, this one has thick stripes and this one has thin stripes. And she made categories and just named them with letters of the alphabet. And she was sorting the stars into groups to try to create a classification system for the stars.
1: What was her name, Fleming? What was her full name?
2: Wilhelmina Patton Stevens Fleming. Mrs. Fleming, as she was known around the observatory. And she had a very distinguished career and was made an honorary member of the Royal Astronomical Society. When the American Astronomical Society was first founded, she was a member. It's, um, it's such an unusual history to be associated with Harvard because Harvard, of course, was a men's college, not particularly open to women. But the observatory was, was something like a wholly disowned subsidiary. Mm. And Pickering could really do what he wanted. And he made Mrs. Fleming an officer of the university, gave her a title. She was the curator of astronomical photographs. And with that title, she got her name in the catalog.
1: Mm, I love that story. Is it known how many stars she categorized?
2: At least 10,000. And she published that about 1890. It, it showed the value of, of spectroscopy. Um, people weren't sure at first just what would be revealed. Oh. So the chemical composition, but later on, not just the composition, but the, the constitution of the universe mm-hmm. and the fact that hydrogen and helium are super abundant in the stars. Many of the chemicals of course, were, were known on Earth. So since the, the composition of the stars consisted of well-known elements, it was thought that maybe the proportions were similar to earthly proportions. But one of the later characters, Cecilia Payne, who, who came as a graduate student, not an employee, she was able to figure out the, the proportionality and was the first one to suggest that stars consist mainly of hydrogen and helium.
1: And that was a big surprise to everyone?
2: Huge surprise. In fact, she was told that it was impossible.
1: Why? Why, why was it thought to be impossible?
2: Because it was so counterintuitive. It was just not what people were expecting. And the idea that hydrogen was a million times more abundant, that, that mm. everything else... Was, was a trace element in comparison. Uh, just seemed that it couldn't be true. So this was Miss Payne's doctoral thesis where she revealed this finding. And she she had to say that it might be incorrect. And the leading expert in the country at the time on on stellar spectroscopy was Henry Norris Russell and he was the one who told her, but it was impossible. Um, But he took it seriously, and he did further research himself over a period of years, and it took him only four years to come around and say, you know what, it really is mostly hydrogen.
1: You know, sometimes we listen to the arguments among scientists and think it's a flaw, but it's good that he both listened and took his time To verify it.
2: Exactly. She needed someone of his stature to support her findings. That was very important.
1: Another discovery that seems to be important, but I don't quite understand it, is Miss Levitt.
2: Ah, Miss Levitt.
1: Who figured out variable stars. What does all that mean?
2: Well, she figured out a distance scale. That's what was exciting about her work. Because when you look up at the stars, how do you know how far away anything is? Right. That was a major mystery.
1: You can't go by which one is brighter.
2: No, exactly. It wasn't clear at first whether the brighter ones were really brighter or whether they were just a lot closer. So she was able to look at photographs that were taken from the southern hemisphere and that showed one of the satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. These, These objects are called the Magellanic Clouds because... Magellan first saw them when he circumnavigated the globe. Mm. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, they look they look like nebulous starry patches. And she had excellent photographs of, of both the Magellanic clouds. And she discovered a couple of thousand variable stars in that group,
1: What was variable about them?
2: A variable star varies its brightness over time. When she was looking at these objects, she reasoned that they were all the same distance away, because they were all part of the same tight stellar grouping. So within that group, the stars that were the brightest actually were brighter.
1: I see, because they were all in the Magellanic Cloud.
2: Because they were all in that same area. Yeah. And so she would time them. How long does it take each of these stars to go through its cycle? And the crucial observation that she made was that the brightest stars took the longest time. And she pointed this out, and she made a very close observation of about 25 stars to show that the the brighter stars followed the longer periods. And there were stars like that in the Milky Way much closer. So people compared the brightness of the nearby variables with the brightness in the Magellanic clouds and were able to make the first estimate of the distance of the Magellanic clouds. And the estimate was 30,000 light years, which was enormous. Nowadays, we know they're actually much, much farther away, but it was the beginning of having a yardstick that could get you from the planets to the stars. So what she did was called the period luminosity relation. But nowadays people like to call it the Levitt law. She was considered for a Nobel prize, but she had already died and the prize is not awarded posthumously.
1: When we come back from our break, Davis Sobel tells me how the hundreds of thousands of glass plates that recorded stars a hundred and more years ago are carefully preserved at the Harvard Observatory, and how those plates may still reveal secrets. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone— or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers, need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup Pots were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold Coffee in the Roasted Coffee aisle.
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Davis Sobel. In her book, The Glass Universe... She tells the stories of the achievements of a dozen or more women who helped interpret the stars, which leads to the obvious question. Who's your favorite among all of these women who were working so hard to tell us about the stars?
2: My favorite is Annie Jump Cannon. She was so game. She was, she was up for anything. And she was the one who really carried out the completion of the catalog and she cataloged more than a quarter of a million stars and she was a remarkably cheerful warm-hearted person she was very hard of hearing but she wore a hearing aid and she was able to attend concerts operas in fact one of the things I found in the University Archives boxes of programs from concerts she had attended and she and and boxes of her diaries and she records went to see such and such with so-and-so went to the college club um, voted for the first time voting is very easy she said mm. and she carried on because she was the world's expert at the time and was regarded as the world's expert, also became an honorary member of several foreign astronomy associations. She was an officer of the American Astronomical Society. And she not only kept up a correspondence with astronomers all over the world, but she was always interested in their children. And she would write separately to the children. So she was everybody's aunt, ma'am. And among her letters, after a few years of writing to these children, there would be a a wedding invitation. And um, she spoke uh, for the public at meetings. She did radio transmissions for the general public. Uh, For in-house meetings, she also baked oatmeal raisin cookies. And toward the end of her life, she endowed a prize for women astronomers. And it's called the Annie Jump Cannon Prize. And it's a sum of money. When she was alive, it included a, a beautiful pin or necklace that she would find some craftsperson to make for each winner that could be worn long after the money was spent. Uh, nowadays, you don't, you don't get a necklace or a pin. But the award is still given. And the important thing now is that the winner gets to give an important lecture at the annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society. So really attention is drawn to that, Hmm. whoever the young woman is that year.
1: How did our understanding of stars change thanks to the work of the women in this group?
2: The um, effort at classification helped reveal the fact that the stars have different temperatures. And the real reason for the different spectra was the different temperature. And also that stars evolve. They have a birth, life, and a, and a death. And their spectra change over the course of their lifetimes. Um, our lifetimes are puny in comparison, but there are so many stars that we can actually see examples of stars at different stages of their lives. It was a lot to figure out.
1: These photographs were all taken on glass plates. Yes. Fragile in one sense. You don't want to crack them or break them, but the emulsion on the plates, was that also liable to be damaged if they weren't carefully handled?
2: Yes, and age can also affect them no matter how carefully Mm. they're handled. So this collection goes back to the 1880s. About half a million of those plates are still kept at Harvard. They've recently been made part of the library system, which is great. And the plate collection has been named for Mrs. Fleming. Ah. Uh, so uh, she, she lives on in the glass universe.
1: They were given a special treatment because there was a fear of fire, I think.
2: Oh, yes. Fear of, of their destruction because they're unique. They're, they remain the only visual record. Astronomers used to make drawings of what they saw. But a photograph is a, a clearer, more objective record. And Pickering's aim was to photograph not just the spectra, but the whole sky every night mm. from the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere and create a, a, a living library of source material. And even now it's possible to go back Uh, and look, now now that more kinds of stellar beasts are known, to to go back and see what evidence there is for those things on these plates from more than 100 years ago.
1: So it's still possible to get new knowledge about the universe from looking at these pictures that were taken 130, 140 years ago.
2: I don't know. I don't want to overstate that it's new knowledge, but it's knowledge unavailable from any other source. Mm. So if if you are doing modern work in X-ray astronomy, I don't know that you'd find anything new on the plates, but you might have a reason to, to look at them, to see what was in that part of the sky that was visible to those telescopes at that time. It might give you an insight.
1: I was struck by your account now exactly 130 years ago at the World's Fair where Susan B. Anthony spoke and Wilhelmina Fleming spoke.
2: Well, Mrs. Fleming was going to speak, but then she couldn't go at the last minute. They were too busy. So someone read her report for her. Ah. She did write about it, and she talked about astronomy as a field for women's work. And how proud she was of that and of her role in it and how much she was able to contribute.
1: And even said, do I remember this correctly? She said men are good at some things and some women are just as good at those things. And sometimes in some areas, maybe a little better. Yeah. (laughs) That whole notion of drawing attention to the successes of women in science it seems to me to be a really important thing, and you're you're doing that next on Marie Curie, right?
2: Yes, and I'm so excited to share her with you. <laughs> I know I, I know you're on record as saying that you love her, and I can surely see why. She she is an outsized character.
1: She's Just, wonderful.
2: She is so wonderful.
1: Nothing would stop her.
2: Nothing stopped her. So, uh, some years ago, my editor suggested writing a biography of her, Mm. that there hadn't been one in a long time. And I thought, I didn't have anything new to say about her. And as fascinating as she is, what would be the point? But a few years ago, I was asked to review a new book called Women in Their Element. And it was all about women chemists. There were, must have been 35 essays about various women. And the, I think I recognized three names in the whole book, of course, Marie Curie was one of them. But the fascinating thing to me in reading all these other essays was how many of these people had worked for her or studied under her mm. at some point. And I I I just felt it's the glass universe. but It's radioactive. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, because as you know, her husband died at a very young age and she was only 39 at the time of his death. And she took over the lab. She took over his professorship at the Sorbonne. So she was the first female faculty member there. And because... They had won the Nobel Prize together. She was world famous. And she was the only woman in the world who was in charge of a research laboratory. And that made her a magnet for young women all over the world who were interested in physics or chemistry and the new science of radioactivity. And there were very few places you could go to be at the forefront of radioactivity research. So she did not actively seek out women. But what she did that was important was to not turn them away.
1: Mm. The question of credit really looms for me in her life. Because although she was awarded, after some difficulty, after some pressure from Pierre... She was awarded the first Nobel Prize along with him. She wasn't allowed to speak to accept it. He, he had to accept it for both of them. And on the, the unprecedented occasion when she won a second Nobel Prize, they not only didn't want her to speak, they didn't want her to come to Stockholm because it had gotten into the papers that she was having an affair with a married man. So the science took second place to what they thought a woman's place ought to be.
2: But she refused to back down.
1: Yeah, that's the and thing. She, it wouldn't yeah. it just didn't stop her.
2: And she said, I, I can't see what rumors about my personal life have to do with science. Exactly. With what I've, yeah.
1: She even had to make sure that the unit of measurement called the Curie remained a, a reflection of her name.
2: I think there was no doubt that people were going to name the unit, the Curie, not just for her but for Pierre. And at first she really wanted it for Pierre, not for herself. The, the problem was she wanted the unit to be based on emanation from a full gram of radium. That's what she fought for. Nobody had that much radium except Marie Curie. So the, the other scientists were, were thinking it should be based on a on a milligram because that would be more useful. I, I think she felt that Pierre's unit couldn't be puny. It had to be, it had to be generous. It had to be a full gram, which um, as, as you know, because you've, you've studied her, to get a gram of radium, it takes, it takes a mountain of ore and a lot of time and trouble.
1: I think it was seven tons of ore she personally shoveled and boiled down to get the material that she needed to study. It's, it just, it's just another example of, no, nothing stopped her.
2: Nothing stopped her.
1: I wrote a play about Marie Curie. Yes, I know. And I felt during the writing of that that I got to know someone. Did you have that feeling?
2: I do have that feeling. And one of the things that has been most helpful to me are her letters, her, her correspondence with her children. They wrote to each other constantly. Those letters have been released, they're publicly available, and I find them a real window on her her attitude about many things.
1: Well, you must be having the best time working on
2: this. I'm in Paris every morning. <laughs>
1: it's
2: just great.
1: That's so great. We've come to kind of the end of our time, but we end every conversation with seven quick questions. You game? I think so. <sighs> You'll be great. First question: What do you wish you really understood?
2: I'm tempted to say everything. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll just settle for for atomic structure and string theory. How's that?
1: That's a good thing to settle for. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: I tread very carefully, and. Try to be as polite as I can and make sure that I know what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't want to counter with another wrong, unfact. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: I, I was being interviewed by Brian Lamb once, and he, he had this wonderful program called Book Notes. And in the middle of the interview, he asked me, what year did your father die? And I was so taken aback that I couldn't remember for a few minutes. Um, but, I, but I rallied. I thought that was the strangest question.
1: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: I have not found a way to do that.
1: That seems to be the, the real stumbling block for all of us.
2: I, th- I think the way I get around it is by being mostly a hermit. (laughs) I don't encounter too many people, compulsive talkers or otherwise.
1: Well, let's say you do find yourself at a dinner table.
2: That's rare also.
1: Someone you don't know. How do you begin a genuine conversation?
2: Again, I rarely find myself in that position. I'm trying to remember the last time I found myself sitting next to a strange person at dinner. I'd probably just say, what is your name? And if the person was really a compulsive talker, that's all I'd have to do.
1: <laughs> you've, you've tied up the two questions that are hard to answer so that they answer each other. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence?
2: Sometimes I go back and reread things that I wrote a long time ago, and I think, yes, I do know how to do this. I, I... It gives me the the strength to to go ahead and try to do it again.
1: That's great. Okay, last question. What book changed your life?
2: I'm sure there's an answer to that. It's probably one of Carl Sagan's books Hmm. because he certainly changed my life. Before, he was famous on television. I went to a public lecture he gave when, when he was just a shaggy scientist. And it, it really did change my life. And I'm trying to think what he had written by that. The Cosmic Connection, I think, was already published. Another book I really love is E.O. Wilson's book, Naturalist.
1: The Naturalist?
2: It's Naturalist, yeah. It's, it's his story, how, how he became. His childhood in Alabama, why he's interested in ants. It's um, a very engaging, inspiring scientist biography.
1: Well, you've inspired me.
2: Oh, you know, I have to say, when I was writing my play about Copernicus, I always pictured you as Copernicus.
1: Oh, <laughs> but, thank you. That's nice. Thank yeah. you. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, and I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. I love talking to you. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Aldous Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Davis O'Bell's books include the international bestseller Longitude, which was the basis of both a television documentary and a made-for-TV movie. Her other books include Galileo's Daughter, The Planets, and A More Perfect Heaven. The play she wrote about Copernicus was called And the Sun Stood Still. The book we talked about is The Glass Universe, how the ladies of the Harvard Observatory took the measure of the stars— this episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Valerie Fridland. She's written an eye-opening and often very funny book with the inspired title, Like Literally Dude. It does something I wouldn't have believed possible. It's changed my mind about some of the ways people, in my opinion, are cluttering up the English language with words like like and so and literally. And then there are all those uhs and ums
2: um and uh are incredibly valuable to our listeners. They do all sorts of things. For one, they help them remember what we say. They help recognize what we're going to say in terms of words or story points faster than when we don't use an um and uh. Um, They're incredibly good signposts for a listener, and there is substantive research that suggests that you do a solid to your listener when you're using um and uh.
1: Valerie Fridland, author of Like Literally Dude,